Welcome to All the Light We Can Carry. I'm Leah Wilcox, and I'm with my co-hosts, Marilee Stark and Linnea Brand. And today's conversation <laughs> is about hope. So because hope can be somewhat of, a, of an abstract concept, at least as you approach it, it can mean different things to different people, can be defined differently. We're going to start out today by sharing an experience that we've had in which hope was a relevant factor. And so once we've shared those experiences, then we'll try to sort of talk about some of the elements of hope as we understand them, as we're trying to embrace them and incorporate them into our lives and things that we've learned as we've explored this topic over this week, things that we've learned that we feel like will be helpful to plug into what we knew before going forward and using hope in our lives. So Mary Lee, I'm going to start with you. Can you share, give us just an experience from your life in which hope was a factor, was an element of the experience, so that as we discuss hope, we kind of can maybe draw back on that experience to plug in some of the things that we learn and discuss. So after reading what I read on hope and learning a, a little bit more, or I would just say in not a concrete experience, but in general terms, I was able to look at my life and recognize that when I'm super motivated to do anything, when I'm excited about doing anything, it's because I have hope. <laughs> and then and the opposite is true. If I wake up in the morning and any day of drudgery is generally because there's nothing I'm really pinning my hopes on. <laughs> <laughs> about the day, <laughs> you know, mm. it's going to be a day to just get through and endure. Yeah. And that interested me a lot. That hope is the difference between a day of drudgery and a day that feels like super motivated and energetic. And uh, I just thought that was interesting. But in terms of an experience where I really needed hope. So in one of the things I read by John Groberg, he shares a Tongan proverb and he says, oh, this is going to make me cry, but he says, there is no pain so great as hope unfulfilled. I don't know. I think there's a lot of pain in the world, but unfulfilled hope is a big one. When I thought about that, what immediately came to my mind was just, so my husband and I were, were self-employed and that's an uh, experience that really just shapes everything <laughs> about mm -hmm. your day reality. There's a lot of vulnerability with being self-employed. But for just a lot of years, there were a few things that I was hoping for. They're unique to me. Not everybody would probably have so much hope set on these things. Their heart wouldn't be so set on these things, but they were really important to me. And they were really simple things like having all the laundry done <laughs> and having some beautiful flower gardens having personal time to develop gifts and talents, to do the things that felt like an expression of my most authentic self, to have a clean house, to feel like life wasn't out of control. I mean, and those are good things. Who? It's not, obviously, something's not right if you don't feel like, you know, if you feel like life is a little bit out of control. But what I was doing because our work was so demanding and so consuming in our life was I was constantly saying, well, we just have to get through this, this project, this month, this week. And I was constantly saying in a month, it's going to be better. In 
two months. Oh, it's just around the corner. It's always around the corner. And I was always able to believe that we would get there, that I just had to get through these next few, th- few things. But there was always then something else. We had probably been in business, I don't know, 12 years or something. And I don't know, I can't even remember now what happened, but something happened. And suddenly my ability to believe that is going to get better just around the corner, it just collapsed. It just went away, gone, zero. And I was suddenly like, it's not true. It's not true. I will never have flower gardens. I will always have eight loads of laundry still to be done. (laughs) You know, I I know I've experienced other difficult times, but that particular intersection of time, my sense of loss, I felt like it was experiencing a death. I felt like I was in this deep mourning because I could no longer believe in those things and that intersection of time. That leaves us in a bleak place, and hopefully we're... (laughs) some of the things we'll talk about today could (laughs) be some answers. And I haven't stayed in that place, thankfully. And I think that hope and some adjustment in my beliefs was necessary. But yet, that was an experience where I would identify in my life where, like John Groberg said, that I experienced that pain of hope unfulfilled. And it was really wrenching. Really, I'm super grateful that that's where your mind went. As I asked if you could share an experience, I love that because in my own mind, I've been thinking about hope as being in contrast to like devastation. It's been more about unexpected, but big, hard things that come up in your life. And you're reminding me that like what you said at the very beginning about how a day can be more productive if hope is a part of it. And as you shared the experience that you chose to share, the way I understood it is this kind of accumulation of disappointed hopes leading to this big sense of loss. But it was this daily thing. It wasn't because you were diagnosed with cancer and you had to like have hope to make it through. It's a very daily relevant principle. And so I like that you set the stage for us to talk about about it in that respect, because that's so powerful that it's not just a when things get hard sort of a of a tool, a truth, a choice, I guess. Linnea, how, how about you? What would you what would you share as sort of the of a reference point for you experientially with hope? The first house that we built, our children were all little. I think Michael Lynn was when we started out, I think she was 13 and maybe Mario was 10. I this is kind of what I'm remembering, you know, and down from there. So Misha was a taught, like I potty trained her during that time. And she was my youngest. It was exhausting. Potty training a child when, yeah, it was, we were doing so much of the work ourselves. I remember there was a day I told Frank, I think I'd rather give birth than potty train a child (laughs) (laughs) because it's, it's so hard. It's like this potential to just trash any relationship that you have with your child. And I was really tired. I was leaning over her. We were in the bathroom. I was leaning over, wiping her butt. <laughs> and she looks up at me. She looks at my face and she goes, Mom, you've got mean cracks on your face. <laughs> and I'm like, 
what is she talking about? And she's just looking at me. I look at myself at some point. I'm like, I realize that my worried lines between my brows that meant to her. Oh, that was awful. It was a hard time, but it was a good time. It was stretching for our kids. I checked in with the kids on, you know, we've built with them one, two, three, four houses. And some have launched, some were launched before we built the third house and some were launched before we built the fourth house. But that first house, I remember, you know, we built through the winter. It took like 18 months. We were living in a fifth wheel for part of the time. Our pipes froze. It was just hard. We moved in, even though we weren't really supposed to at Christmas time, because living in a fifth wheel was so unbearable. At some point, just to keep the kids engaged, the kids and I were chopping at Russian thistle that was growing around the house. Not just something to do, it needed to be done. And I thought, yeah, I am teaching these kids to work. This is a good parenting moment. But I found my little Maria, so she probably was about 10. I found her in the back of the house, sitting in the dirt and just sobbing. We had been at it for probably by then about a year. I asked her, of course, what's wrong? She said, there will never be anything but dirt. There will always just be dirt. Everything is dirt and weeds, mom. It will always be dirt. I had a pat answer. I could, well, we're going to make a garden here. You know, we'll finish the house eventually. But in her experience, this is all there was. And sadly, we put them through that, you know, again and again. So that's a moment I can think of. And then interestingly, the other moment that keeps coming to my mind is Maria again in our third house. So construction was over and we had moved in and it was a really difficult time for our family. So at this point, she's a young teenager and her older sister, Mike Lynn, would have been maybe a junior or a senior. Frank was traveling a lot. It was just a hard, hard time for our family. You know, there are various dynamics at play. Michael Lynn is wired on the autistic spectrum. She's very high functioning Asperger's, but that means certain things and how, how her love language works in particular, how she understands whether she's loved or not. And I didn't, for most of her experience, didn't know how to communicate to her in a way that she could understand that she was loved. This caused lots of problems. Maria was having dreams that our family was falling apart. They were really desolate dreams. And she had always been sort of Michaelin's best friend and had kind of buffered the world for Michaelin a little bit, helped her interpret the world, helped her navigate. And there was sort of a rift for them in this moment. And unbeknownst to me, Mike, Maria was also going through really difficult things in high school. She sort of confided into me a sense of hopelessness. Again, it was like, there will always just be dirt. There will never, only it was like, I will always be sad. There will never be, I can't push past the sadness. And we got to a better place. I don't know if we're going to, we need to talk about that right now, but that's another vignette. <laughs> I just want to leave you there. (laughs) I feel like you're echoing uh, Marilee's sentiment at the end of sharing, because I I am asking you for just a little chapter, but 
in our lives, each each chapter, paragraphs, they're all interlinked. And so it, it does feel almost out of context to just select one and put it out there. But both you and Mary Lee, it seems like we're reluctant to just set the stage with a time where hope seemed lacking. You, you both seem like, okay, but can I tell you how we work through that? I love that that's your impulse. That's your inclination. It's just interesting to me to be learning so much right now and think about when I was like, well, why didn't I think of those things in these other moments of my life. But I feel like somehow just because God is merciful and in the details of our lives that he helps us navigate even in our lack of understanding of things to better places if we if we want to be in a better place. And I feel like that's been true for me. I thought of when Mitch had his heart attack. He was 32 years old and super healthy, super fit. I'm five years younger than him at that point. I was thinking, I think I'm pregnant. I don't think I had yet taken the pregnancy test, but I was pretty sure that I was pregnant with our fourth child. I remember getting the kids, uh, Chandler and Chase were getting ready for open house because school was going to be starting. And so you guys remember what it's like to get at that Mm -hmm. time, three little people, like just finding shoes and getting them on feet and getting out the door and wanting to be there in time. And so I I had just loaded them up into the minivan. I was getting Shay in her car seat and I could hear the phone ringing in the house. And I thought, no, we're going. And I, it wasn't like this super strong impression to go answer the phone, but I just thought, no, I just felt like I, like I should. And it was Mitch on the phone and I knew that he was going to leave work to have a doctor's appointment because he'd been having this, what he thought was heartburn, these chest pains and stuff that didn't, and he's going to see what was going on. So I thought that's where he should be at his doctor's appointment right now. When I heard his voice and he said, I'm at the hospital. And I thought, your doctor's appointment's not at the hospital. (laughs) It's at the offices next to the hospital. He said, they tell me I'm having a heart attack. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. He didn't tell me that then. (laughs) He just said, I'm at the hospital. You need to come. And his voice, he he doesn't, especially at that point in our lives, yeah, he didn't cry. And I could tell that his voice broke. And I said, what's happening? He said, you just need to come. And then he hung up on me. (laughs) He and I had been, just previous to that, gotten a call from his brother and his sister-in-law, who'd been in a terrible car accident where she was pretty seriously injured. And they had called and said, come to the hospital And when we got in there, it was messy and scary. And so now I'm having this call from him. And I just thought he got in an accident on the way to the doctor's office. Why isn't he telling me what's going on? I made arrangements for the kids as fast as I could in that circumstance, went to the hospital. And there's Mitch on the stretcher with patch, you know, those, I don't know, things on his patches on his chest. Yeah. Yeah tubes in his nose and he just looked gray. I was in shock. I didn't know what to think. I just remember following the ambulance to a bigger hospital. That was American Fork Hospital and they were taking him to the regional hospital and I'm following the ambulance and just kind of thinking, is he going to die? Am I going to be a single mother? Am I going to have four kids by myself? And just questions in my mind, what does this mean? And this was enough years ago. I should remember all this terminology, but I think it's an angioplasty, not an an angiogram is where they look in your arteries, but this is where they clear a clot. They take a little balloon and clear it. And and they did that procedure and it worked. And they said, Mrs. Wilcox, 
he's stabilized. We know you have small children. You can go home. Everything's going to be okay. You can come back in the morning. They sent me home. So I'm still like, wow, what just happened? You know, this is a matter of hours. I'm driving home. As I'm coming to my driveway, my close friend and neighbor who had my children came running from her house with a phone in her hand. Leah, the hospital called. You have to go back. He's having another episode. <laughs> and so, uh -huh. so I went back again. And this time as I... I thought, two heart attacks? Can you do that? Can that happen? And you survive? In my mind, a heart attack was death. I didn't really understand what a heart attack even meant. So I come up onto the intensive care unit, and there's a receptionist. As I get off the elevator, she looks at me, are you Mrs. Wilcox? And she just seems so somber. And it's so, you know, hospital sounds. It was a very quiet, still time in the hospital. And not like the ER, I guess. It, I said, yes. And I just thought she's waiting to tell me he's dead. And I waited for her to tell me. And she said, you can go this way. And she just directed me, but just she didn't say anything about the status of Mitch's health. And so I started walking that way and I could see down the corridor, a room with Mitch laying on it, but he was very still. And there was a medical attendant, probably a nurse with a clipboard, like, like, like every movie that, you know, just seemed to all point towards that I'm going to find out that my husband is dead and she's got a clipboard and I come in and she looks at me and again, just really somber. And I'm waiting for her to tell me that he's dead, which he, he wasn't. And she said, your husband's doing better. And these are all the things. And so that was a point in my life where I feel like some of what we'll talk about today might be relevant and we can maybe plug into our conversation about hope. It's a little more dramatic than some of the cumulative elements of hope sort of seeming to be lacking over time that you and Mary Lee have described. But I like that we have these different sorts of scenarios that we can use as a foundation to sort of examine hope. So based on the experiences that we've shared, what are some of the things that would come to your minds in terms of what is hope? How do we... <laughs> How do we access hope? How does it become a force for good and light in our lives? And who wants to start jumping into that? It just strikes me that I think that we look around us and we just imagine that only some people suffer, you know, and that's mm -hmm. a kind of a big talking point in our culture. And yet listening to the two of you, it just really strikes me that, that the need for hope is universal. There isn't anyone who doesn't suffer, and there isn't anyone who doesn't suffer in really big doesn't seem to be the right word, <laughs> in ways that really wrench our souls and stretch us to our breaking points. It's a universal experience. The need for hope is also universal. None of us are mm -hmm. exempt. None of us have lives that privileged that we escape <laughs> mm -hmm. the need for hope and for its healing and lifting power. Merrily, as you heard, Linnea and I share our experiences and, and for us, the same as we heard you, as we heard one another, what thoughts about some of the principles of hope seemed to be apparent in your minds? Like, oh yeah, I can see how this principle applies circumstantially, like experientially. The research that I did, or the talks that I read, trying to learn more about hope, it was a little bit of a roller coaster. There's this irony because as I learned more, I was like, oh, I'm not very good at this. 
<laughs> which there's some irony in feeling like I'm not good at hope. <laughs> it's hopeless. You feel, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was kind of part of what I felt. And then I was able to come back to a little more optimism about my ability to to learn this skill and to apply these principles. And particularly that experience that I shared is on my mind because it's not, even though I've been able to move past that intense, just loss of hope, those issues haven't really necessarily gone away completely. My life is still the same. I mean, we're still self-employed. We still have a lot of the same challenges. And so Mm -hmm. I have a situation where I don't have all the answers and I feel like I'm still on a journey of figuring out my life and how to live it in a way that feels really good. But I did feel like what I learned in researching Hope was helpful and helped a few things to fall into place and gave me a few ideas of how I could shift some paradigms and some exercises I could try that would help me. And one of the things that I found to be really helpful was I read, or actually it was a TED Talk by a Dr. Chan Hellman, and he was coming from kind of a scientific point of view when he was talking about hope. And he said that in scientific research, essentially that they break. So hope is one whole thing, but there are three aspects to the body of hope. And so the first thing is to have a goal. Goals are forward looking, they're future looking. The second part of hope is to be able to identify a pathway that can get you to your goal. And then the third part of hope is to have the agency and the willpower, so the freedom and the willpower to be able to pursue that pathway to reach your goal. I'm going to have you just kind of walk us through that a little bit. And then I'm going to ask Linnea about a principle that stood out to her and have a, have her kind of walk us through it a little bit. And we can sort of weave these principles together. But we probably each found different aspects of principles tied to hope that resonated with us in unique ways. So ha- kind of walk us through that. Tell us what was exciting and interesting to you about what you learned. There are kind of like two kinds of hope. I think hope in general is good, but there are some times where we place our hope in something that we really can't control. There's not a guarantee of a positive outcome, and it's not wrong to hope. Like some of the examples is like you might hope for a specific outcome at an election. You might hope that somebody gets better. There's these things that it's not wrong to have hope in them, but those hopes may be unfulfilled. And then, so what do you, what do you do? How do you deal with that? You know, that's one kind of hope. And then if you believe in Jesus Christ, then there is another kind of hope and it it is a a guaranteed hope. (laughs) So when this doctor presented this idea of a goal and a pathway, then what immediately comes to my mind is that when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, the whole purpose of the gospel is to show us a path to a goal. And the unique thing about this path is that Heavenly Father promises us that those hopes can and will be fulfilled. It's really the only pathway that has that promise. 
And so, well, I think hope is important because it is so motivating and we need to have hope in a lot of varieties in our life, in a lot of situations in our life. The one hope that can always get us through the darkness to the light on the other side is our hope in Jesus Christ. And so I think to my circumstances and that experience that I had, part of what I needed to do was to realign my hopes. I think the things that I want are good and I don't need to completely give up on them because that would be, I mean, the reality is I I might just need a few more skills, a little bit more knowledge, you know, a little bit more refinement of myself and my abilities and some of those things that I want the most can still come into my life. You know, I don't need to give up hope on them, but in order to avoid that super devastating loss of hope, what I need to do is to realign myself and remember that the the one hope that doesn't crumble beneath my feet is my hope in the Savior. And that if I make that pathway my priority, and if I really pin my hopes there, then I'm going to have the resilience to make it through when the other peripheral hopes kind of fall out from under me. Hmm. I, I really, really appreciate what you said, Marilee. I read the same talk by Elder Maxwell, and I think maybe the two types of hope, as he terms them, are ultimate and proximate hopes. He also uses the phrase uh, tactical hopes. Though anchored in grand <laughs> and ultimate hope, some of our tactical hopes are another matter. We may hope for a pay raise, a special day, an electoral victory, or for a bigger house, things which may or may not be realized. Faith and Father's plan gives us endurance even amid the wreckage of such proximate hopes. He keeps us anxiously engaged in good causes, even when these appear to be losing causes. I feel like that's relevant to what you what you shared. Having ultimate hope does not mean we will always be rescued from proximate problems, but we will be rescued from everlasting death. Meanwhile, ultimate hope makes it possible to say the same three words used centuries ago by three valiant men. They knew God could rescue them from the fiery furnace if he chose, but if not, they said, nevertheless, they would still serve him. Speaking of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery fiery furnace and there, but if not kind of hope and that ultimate hope that as you it just beautifully expressed it in Jesus Christ that while we there's so much we can't control in terms of outcomes here, his promise of what can of an ultimate outcome through him, because of him and with him, we we can it's a sure foundation. I was just trying to remember the name of it's a Japanese art form. You guys are gonna know what I'm talking about. Right already, a Japanese art. For- <laughs> <laughs> I want to feel super We're smart. On the oh, yeah. page. Here we are. <laughs> we know what I'm talking about. It's kintsugi, where something beautiful is broken, like a beautiful vase, and rather than just throwing it away altogether, they will glue it back together and they'll seal all mm. of those pieces together. Like, I I don't know the exact strategy, whether it's gold leaf over the glue. So all of the cracks are actually like emphasized with gold. So you see those cracks, but it becomes beautiful. I think that this is what hope does for broken dreams. 
<laughs> my kids love this meme of I'm trying to remember he's oh, he's the cute kid in holes he says don't let your dreams be dreams <laughs> anyway <laughs> don't let your dreams be what don't let your dreams be dreams and I think hope and action actually makes a dream not a dream like it becomes a reality when you actually exercise hope and follow through all the way sometimes those dreams are broken just like Marilee said, there's there's the sure hope that we have in deity. I, Neil A. Maxwell, I don't know if it was that same talk or not. He said, real hope does not automatically spring eternal. Because we hear that, you know, hope springs eternal and we believe that. But it doesn't automatically spring eternal unless it is connected with eternal things. But those broken dreams, whether they're peripheral or whether they're our idea of how we're following through on what we really believe we're supposed to do, 10, yeah, they can be pieced back together in a different way. Like, just like Marilee said, you know, she needed to realign. She needed to repicture. And I think that's another thing that hope does for us because it's so crushing to lose what you, what your heart was set on, but then to allow for the pieces to go back in a different way than you had pictured. And my experience, like looking back, every crushed dream that's been fixed, <laughs> there's some like, I still don't see my Michael in hardly ever. So that's, you know, out there. We're waiting to see how that's going to be glued back together. But every crushed dream that has been formed into something different where I've like been meek enough and lowly enough of heart to accept that this isn't going to be my reality and kind of work in collaboration, exercise hope. It just gets glued back so much better. It's more beautiful than what I had originally like designed in my own head. Houses have been that way. And, and that's a literal, like that's a physical thing. Like I always had this dream of how the house would come together and then we would encounter problems. You know, we couldn't get a particular material. We couldn't get a particular craftsman. We weren't as good at something as we thought we would be. And the product turned out different than what I had imagined. And yet I love our houses. This other talk where this woman was talking about the beautiful mess effect, and I'm thinking of, you know, kind of crushed dreams, cracked hopes, and talking about how this actually, the beautiful mess effect is sort of allowing our vulnerability, like uh, just allowing for that disruption of what we had in mind and, you know, allowing hope in Christ to reshape that. It's a beautiful thing. So much of what you said, Linnea. I love the idea of, of the beauty and the art and, and filling in the cracks with the gold and just the beauty from ashes idea. And also what you just said about kind of a mess or broken dreams. And, you know, we had just recently talked about humility and the reality is that uh, potentially if every dream came true, how we initially imagine it, there wouldn't be room for humility and there wouldn't be room for God to come in and say, let's dream a little bigger or a little more clearly or, you know, we were just reading in the scriptures this week to remember the lilies of the field and how even Solomon in all his glory could not array himself like the lilies. And so there's something to 
broken dreams give you this opportunity to let God take charge and to array you like the lilies of the field in a way that you would not be able to do for yourself. One of the other things that you said is is kind of something maybe to talk about just a little bit because I was curious about that because Elder Maxwell in his talk says that truth doesn't spring eternal unless it's, I can't remember the quote, but unless it's tied to God essentially, yeah. which I think that's true. And then John Groberg in his talk, here, let me read this. He says, hope in a word is the savior. Hope is a part of the deity that attaches us to the savior. Don't let that thread be cut, no matter how tenuous or thin it might be. There is always hope. If I understood right, he was seeming to say, God is hope. And because we are his children, we have inherited hope. It's a seed within us, and it's just inevitable. It's there. I thought that that was interesting, but as I looked at my life, I thought, even though there are periods of time where it gets snuffed out for me, or I've noticed about myself that there's some part of me that when I'm experiencing any particular kind of hell, there's this part of me that's like, this cannot be what life is meant to be. It just can't. And that always spurs me on to be like, there, there's an answer. There has to be. I feel some motivation to try to find an answer and to solve the problem so that I'm not stuck in the darkness that I'm experiencing. And I thought, well, maybe that's what John Groberg is talking about. And what a gift it is <laughs> to have that inner voice that's saying, there has to be more. And I hadn't yeah. thought of that as hope, but I think that it is. I love that he points out that hope is, is like you said, it's intrinsic because we're children of God. It's planted in us and it's not like it can be snuffed out. We can be totally in the dark, but it's always there. My kids used to love <laughs> Fantasia 2000. Way back in 2000, Disney came out with this you know, this series of, well, they were cartoons, but it was all about the music. There was no words. There's one that's of the forest and like this forest spirit. She's celebrating the beauty of the forest. Like she's happy. You see her interacting with this elk or this beautiful, majestic, you know, creature of the forest. And it's just really beautiful. There's all this joyful music and then a fire happens. I'm going to cry. That's so dumb. I feel like uh, <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle, you know, where she's like telling the story. <laughs> and then, anyway, because <laughs> I'm talking about a cartoon. <laughs> but she, she's just, she's like rushing everywhere trying to stop this cataclysm. Just all of this fire and it's destroying everything that she loves. And then there's this moment that you feel hopeless with her. At the total desolation. Sadly, I don't remember the turning point other than suddenly there's this little bit of growth and she comes back and she's happy again and she's touching everything and everything's growing. And I just think for any of us, you know, any of God's children, there's circumstances. Sometimes we create them ourselves. Sometimes someone else creates them where there's this Holocaust where it just, Everything is just burned, trashed, but there is always, always, always that little kernel that can regrow 
can rebloom. That thread can't be severed. It's always a choice. It's always a choice, but it's always there. Linnea, as you're sharing that and you're laughing at yourself for crying over a cartoon, <laughs> I'm laughing with you. But it's not a cartoon. I think it's the universal experience. The joy and the, and the simplicity of some aspects of life and the fires that come that challenge our sense of expectations and realities and require this new establishment of understanding of ourselves and the world around us and finding new hope. I love how after a forest fire, I live in Oregon where we happen to have them quite frequently, how as we've hiked through areas that were once devastated by fire, that phrase hope springs eternal seems so relevant to all the new green sprouts that start to emerge and the new growth and new trees springing up where the other ones were de you know, destroyed by fire. And I yeah. think of my experience when I was, you know, so young, a young mom in my 20s with three children and one on the way, and it felt like a fire, felt like that, like everything that by which I did, I sort of understood the world around me was stripped away, and I felt so lost, and I, I started to question everything about myself, about how did I get to where I was, I, I kind of had just done the things as I understood you do them. I was trying to do the right things, and I felt like I had a relationship with Jesus Christ and my Father in Heaven, but it was just kind of on that list of the things that you do, <laughs> but the correct choices that you make, you here they are, and I'm doing them, I'm following the list, and then I thought that list kind of equated to some sort of outcomes that were suddenly threatened. <laughs> And I remember uh, shortly after that happened, <laughs> this is ironic because Mitch recovered so quickly and I was grateful, but I couldn't really embrace the, the blessing of what that represented. Within a year of the time he had a heart attack, the cardiologist that did the stress test where they put the dye in your body to see how your heart responds to you, to put you on a treadmill. He said, if I hadn't had the original picture that indicated the damage, muscle damage on his heart from the heart attack, it would have been hard to find it, to identify that any damage had been done, which is miraculous. So on the one hand, I was, I had this experience, I thought my husband's going to die. And then within a few days, he was, I was driving him home from the hospital and he's asking me to get him a, a McFlurry at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you just had a heart attack. He said, I know, and I hate hospital food. <laughs> it was very shortly. I don't remember exactly the time frame, but I don't even think it was a week. He was in the mountains hunting <laughs> and, I, and I was still left with my whole world spinning. And I felt like I had no place to to set my feet, no solid ground to stand on. And Marilee, and was it Colleen with you? It was one of your friends. She was doing massage therapy. Oh, Kristen. Mm. And you just, you just knew. <laughs> if I were to try to put an image with a feeling, I was spinning in space with all this debris and no world to have as a reference for my being. And it's so weird, but you just like helped, helped ground me just a little bit in a very significant way. So I say a little bit not to minimize, but um, you said, let us give you a massage. And I needed to be still because it helped me to know I, that mom and dad were in Rexburg 
whereas typically they live in Oregon, which is much farther. I wanted to be with my parents. At that time, our relationship was not what it is today. It was still healing. It was still mending. But that experience with you, Marilee, helped me to have the sense, like it started to restore hope. You're known. You're loved. There's a place for you. Not everything is is out in orbit. (laughs) And it helped me to feel, okay, I'm going to pack up my kids. I'm going to put them in the van. I'm going to go see mom and dad. And I asked dad for a father's blessing. And that was another layer of hope restored. When through the power of God, through that blessing, I knew that God was mindful of me. I began to have this sense of my basing, my stability and my security in the circumstances of my life, Mitch taking care of us and our kids. I didn't have the foundation that I needed, that I could trust that Jesus Christ could be that foundation and that my loving Heavenly Father could be that foundation and that they trusted me. I felt so afraid that if Mitch was out of the equation, I wasn't capable. I I, I couldn't do anything on my own. And they said, we're with you. You can do it with us. So I've never thought of the scripture as sort of pointing towards hope. I've thought of it as the scripture of faith, and those two are so interwoven. But I love this in the context of our conversation. And it's from a father to his sons, Helaman speaking to his sons. My sons, remember, remember that is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. And misery and endless woe, in contrast with hope and faith and love. Yeah, just kind of comes together for me in a different way. In the last few podcasts, we're talking about small and simple things. That is how we turn our lives. Big things happen through us taking small and simple actions. And it seems like God operates on the same principle. He does really small and simple things, and it turns the access for us really dramatically. So you're feeling just lost. And a couple of simple things help to ground you again and give you this flicker of hope, enough light to be able to start navigating again. And I, this Dr. Chan Hellman is interesting. Some of the words you said, he said almost the exact same thing. His dad was a drug dealer and would take him as a, a young boy on his drug deal work with him <laughs> because he felt like having his son with him would mean that he was less likely to get shot at. So his son was like his human <gasps> shield, oh my you know? Um, <sighs> yeah, which is really awful. And so he ultimately ran away from home when he was quite young. And so from a young age, Hellman's time with his father was primarily spent tagging along on drug deals, which was mainly a tactic used by his father to prevent violence from occurring. In the eighth grade, Hellman decided to transition into homelessness because it was safer than his home life. <sighs> Sorry. D- during that time, he would find Coke bottles and exchange them for money to buy a meal, would go to school early to shower, and sometimes slept on the roof of the school. Hellman was 
experiencing extreme anxiety, turmoil, and hopelessness to the point that he almost ended his life. Then at a critical moment in his life, a high school coach simply said the words to him, Chan, everything is going to be okay. The glimmer of hope found in those encouraging words stopped him from taking his life, which ultimately led him to graduate high school, go to college, get married, and eventually become the man he is today. Then he quotes Chan. He says, what I heard in the Chan, you're going to be okay, is you're worthy of love. You're worthy of somebody's attention and intention, and you're worthy of a future. Hellman said, I think that this is why personally for me, faith is such an important part of my own journey with hope because I listen to the worship songs, I listen to the teachings, and what I hear is we are children of God and we are worthy of the future that's offered to us. Anyway, I just thought it was so incredible that it just took such a small thing, such a small moment of somebody being encouraging and saying an encouraging thing to give him that glimmer of hope that he needed to pull him back from the brink of death to engage in life. It's hopeful on so on so many levels that, again, facing the darkness, and we think it's going to take something so big to turn that darkness around. But simple things can help us to turn the darkness around in our own life and in the lives of our fellow humans, our brothers and sisters in the human family. Marilee, when as you're talking about the small and simple but so powerful elements of light and connection with others that can establish or, well, if hope is innate in each of us, can kind of spur that little seed of divinity, divine hope in us to sort of begin to grow. And it can be such a coach, a teacher, a sister coming to give a foot massage (laughs) <laughs> can restore hope after something that feels, you know, so dramatic. Something that simple can be so profound. It occurs to me that another aspect of hope that I hadn't really considered, and I'm trying to find some quotes that reinforce this, how it's a building thing. So hope feeds more hope. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the outside source of hope comes and waters your little seed of hope. And and then experientially, you've had times of maybe despondency, maybe discouragement, like whatever level of the absence of hope where hope has been restored. So then there's this accumulation also over time of learning by experience that hope can come again, that after the fire, new growth will come. And so there's both those small and simple things that build the hope and kindle it in the first place. I think, Linnea, maybe that was why when you started to share, you said, well, there's all these vignettes because there's been these building experiences throughout my life that help me understand hope. It's not just a single isolated event. Sometimes you can read scriptures and you read them as just suggestions or maybe good ideas, but I don't think that's what God intended. When he tells us things to be of good cheer and and do not fear because I'm with you, when he says that we need to have a perfect brightness of hope, and it's interesting right after that, I think, and a love of God. And so those things are connected. A love of God increases our ability to have a perfect brightness of hope. I love our theology and the gospel as I know it because it resonates with both my head and my heart. And not just one and not just the other. It's both. So I love to think about these things 
in the light of, well, why are they reasonable? Why do they actually function and and work in the real world? And when I think about despair, an image comes to my mind. It's dark. And I see this toxic, dark cloud moving over the landscape and it's ominous and feels evil, right? And you can just see it just destroying and eating up everything in its path. We can live through a bit of despair, but if you think, well, we're eternal beings, choices we make, if you look at them from the perspective of eternity, what does an eternity of despair do? You don't survive it. You disintegrate into nothing because that's intolerable in eternity of despair. If that is true, then even though hope looks irrational, like we look around us and we're like, why would I hope? This looks hopeless. That looks hopeless. Why would we hope? It's because you look at hope times eternity. And hope times eternity is the only thing that has the power of salvation, has the power of redemption. Hope makes more sense because of the fact that it doesn't just destroy everything. We use in our culture sustainable. Despair is not sustainable. Eventually, it wraps in on itself and everything about it collapses into nothingness. And so it's just gone. But hope, on the other hand, builds up and builds up and creates and redeems and saves. And it's the only thing that is sustainable for eternity. That to me means that hope is reasonable. Hope is rational. And I love that because for me, that actually has helped me when I look out at my world and I'm like, oh, why would I be hopeful? I remind myself of that. I'm like, because it's it's the only reasonable choice. Really, what you're saying about just the rationality of truth and how it resonates in both your mind and in your heart, there's place simultaneously for both things. Well, sometimes for me, it's not necessarily simultaneously, but eventually, The two can come together in my heart and my mind. Sometimes there's wrestling involved. I think this is relevant. In my mind, it is. It's from Nellie Maxwell's talk, Brightness of Hope. Hope helps us to walk by faith, not by sight. This can actually be safer. When unaided spiritually, natural sight often shrinks from the odds. It is immobilized by improbabilities. Mauled by his moods and intimidated by his fears, the natural man overreacts too, while hope overrides the disappointments of the day. I understand that to mean that that. our hearts and our minds lend a clear vision of possibilities and facilitate hope. Whereas if we see only with our mortal lens, then we could be easily immobilized by the improbabilities. And you also suggested a an equation to me, as you talked about over time, like if you see, follow it to its end, despair eats its own self away. There's nothing, (laughs) there's no fruits. There's nothing that can be produced. It doesn't produce anything. It just only eats, it only eats away. It's a black hole. Yeah. Like it literally, like a black hole is such a good, as we understand it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. I think. Black hole may not be a black hole, but as we understand it, that's yeah, a good metaphor. Yeah. Whereas on the other hand, and I don't know what the good metaphor, if there's a black hole on the one hand, what is the the hope is maybe the sun that continues to rise each day. We know the darkness is temporary and emits so so much powerful light and warmth and sustainable energy. 
And faith, hope, and charity, those three being interweaving truths. I think John Groberg says they're traveling companions. We have three mountains that are part of the Cascade Mountain Range where I live, three mountains that I see almost every day. And they're called the Three Sisters. They're faith, hope, and charity. I love that you can't separate them. They're part of a range of mountains. They're distinct mountain peaks, all connected by the same foundation. We won't have time today to launch very deeply into the connections between faith, hope, and charity, but it is part of the arithmetic of the sustainability of each of those three principles and how they multiply and enhance and promote and growth and and light and you know all those good things that fear and despair and all the opposites eat away the negativity subtracts from those things i have thought about it before about the intersection between love and hope if somebody says that they love me but they don't have any belief in my my abilities to accomplish good things or they don't engage in encouraging me to do good things and they seem to be skeptical about my ability to do good things and even say things kind of in opposition that would dampen my hope in myself. That like you'll never be able to do it. You can't do it. You haven't done it yet. Especially somebody if that's somebody close to you. I think that's one of the really wildly painful things that we can have happen. It's very much an opposition to love. Also, like if I am the person that I'm looking at somebody and I'm not feeling very hopeful about them for whatever reason, then I notice one of the words that Maxwell uses kind of in conjunction with hopelessness is to be desensitized. If I don't feel very hopeful about somebody, I immediately want to distance myself from them. I feel a little desensitized because it's like kind of painful to be to yeah. be too close to that. And so one, I distance myself. And two, even if I am trying to care about them, my inability to have hope for them creates like this fracture. It's impossible to be really unified and really intimate heart to heart. So when I'm thinking about close personal relationships, like our children, our spouse or whatever, if I'm able to look at my husband and look at his faults, for example, and instead of being fearful, because my fear immediately, it takes away hope and it also creates a distance. And then that fractures my ability to love. But if I'm able to say, you know, one, I know God is active in your life. And Two, you're a good person. You have all these abilities as a son of God to develop and grow and change. And three, don't I want you to look at me and my flaws <laughs> and believe in me and my ability to overcome them and, and that God is working with me? If I do all those three things, then my my hope can be restored. And then that restores our closeness and our unity. And there's then an environment where love can really flourish. Those were just some of my thoughts as I was trying to figure out why why are hope and love wrapped up in each other. And like I could see the hope is really important for like a glue to bind people together in close uh, relationships, to keep them unified, to keep them from fracturing. And to bring them back together if fractures occur, like Linnea talked about mm-hmm. earlier with that with that yeah, goal that mm-hmm. can actually make a more beautiful and complete whole 
despite the fracturing that may have preceded that healing process? I think it's even possible where it's really difficult to see a good outcome. You know, what you see is so flawed. If you love God and you believe in Him, you believe in Christ, you believe in redemptive powers, you've experienced the beauty and miracle of, you know, that kind of alchemy, you can look at this person that you're struggling with and you're like, and you, you could be the forest after the fire. This could happen. I love that. I love God. I believe in this. You know, I don't think I've ever experienced, I've never looked at someone and not seen anything at all. You know, that was good. There's always, always something inherently good in somebody. It's just been so, just way, way, way too easy to see someone's behavior and be like, oh, yeah, not good. Just not good. And I I was even recently in a conversation where someone was like, there's just no hope. This and this and this and this have happened. I can't see how this is going to ever resolve. It's just hopeless. We go there so easily. And it does no good, not one lick of good. So even if it's, you know, this person or event or whatever is dire, it does no good to say, oh, there's, there's just no hope. You get nowhere good from that. Elder Groberg, John Groberg, ties that principle into hope as well. He talks about not judging others being a, a part of what it means to have hope. He ties in justice and forgiveness. And like, I hope that person gets what's coming to them. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> if hope is, is synonymous with light and with Christ, like Christ is the source of hope. And that's why we have hope planted in us as children of God. It's part of who we are. He says that one of Satan's ultimate weapons, if not the ultimate, is to remove hope from your life. He tries to convince you that you can't do it, that there is no hope. Thus, by removing hope, he removes Christ from your life, for Christ is hope. Satan can never quite accomplish that fully, at least not here, because it is a lie. There is hope built within all of us. There is always hope. So when to be hopeless, then we participate in the lie. If we yes. there's no reason for hope, then we're contributing to that ultimate weapon of the adversary, which is like Merrily pointed out, the end of which is just destruction. And Merrily, when you're talking about how difficult it can be to have a sense of people doubting, not having faith in you, not trusting your capacities and feeling like, can we maybe give this assignment to someone better <laughs> qualified or, you know, just it reminds me, it takes my mind to my own experiences in sports and to being a mother of athletes and having the sense that put them on the court, give them a chance and don't pull them off the second that they lose the ball. Help this individual have a sense of being able to recover from the imperfect executions that that are so universal and have hope in their capacities, have faith in them, have trust in them, love them enough to be okay with that they shot a basket on the wrong, on the opponent's, in the opponent's <laughs> side of the court. <laughs> you know, I'm, using, I'm, I'm using this metaphorically and it almost trivializes it, but I really feel it strongly that, that it can be so empowering when someone says, yeah, I, I know that you missed that shot. Shoot again. Keep shooting. 
I remember being told that as my biggest weakness in basketball is shooting, <laughs> which means I'm not a great player, but I dribble and I steal the ball pretty well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to have a coach tell me, keep shooting, it was like, well, I can do that, but I'm not good at it. No, keep shooting. How else will you get good? Shoot. When you're open, you shoot the ball. Like metaphorically speaking, that just really resonates with me as a significant aspect of the day-to-day -day hope. Are we building it? Are we listening to the lie in regard to ourselves? Are we promoting the lie in others that there's not reason to press forward and to have brightness of hope? Definitely how that ties to, to the love of God, how he loves us, how we love him, and how through him we can have increased love for others. It is really beautiful that we can not only learn hope ourselves, learn the pathways of hope, and how it works in our lives, but that we can really gift that more to other people. I think because when we do make a basket in the <laughs> the wrong side of the court, <laughs> just our ex our expectation is to be just crushed, to be mm -hmm. rejected, to be criticized. We don't expect forgiveness. We don't expect a second chance. And ah, oh, how amazing it is when somebody gives us a second chance. And it's not even just giving us a second chance, but I think the gift of a really, really good teacher, a true teacher, is that they have so much authentic confidence in you and they're able to communicate it. And their confidence is so authentic that you you can't resist it. You believe you believe it. When they say, no, oh, for sure, you've got this. I totally know you do. And they say it in this way that you believe that they believe, then that belief is contagious. And you start to be like, oh, it's a little voice of courage saying, maybe I can, maybe I can. And it's just a gift we don't give to each other often enough and generously enough. And I feel inspired by that idea. Towards the end of his TED talk, I can't remember the doctor. He just said this, phrase, he said, at the heart of change is our ability to understand the way things are. Hope gives us a path. But the ability to understand the way things are, part of hope is like recognizing the truth. Like, I just actually put the ball in the wrong side, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was probably not okay. You know, I probably shouldn't have done that. So I had a, an art teacher, a painting. <laughs> Oh, he just let us loose. This was at BYU. It was an introduction to oil painting, one of them. I thought he was awesome, but he's just like, hey, just paint. <laughs> he didn't teach us a whole lot of things. But I remember him looking at this painting that I had done, and I tried to represent snow in just this very beginner landscape. And he's like, in nature, you don't ever really see pure. That looks like mold. <laughs> <laughs> my your your white is too white that's not really what snow looks like so that was a gift I have also played sports and I suck <laughs> I always have like I can run that's something I can do because you're just putting one foot in front of the other but I would be I don't know that I can dribble and I remember the painful experience of playing softball with girls who would get mad, you know, on your own team, who would be so mad at you for making mistakes. But my experience with this teacher was like, 
he, at the same time, I felt this confidence from him. He, he just told me what I did wrong. And he was like, you can fix it. You can do it. It was just this really small little experience. And it wasn't even that he said. His telling me that my snow looked like mold wasn't the same kind of indictment that I got from teammates, you know, when I was 14 or something. There was hope there. Like, I think he just believed it. I think he must have believed it about every student. Every student was potentially a great artist. He didn't even have to say it. Well, no, it just leads us back to love again. Whatever people are saying, we respond to where their heart is. Yeah, I'm sensitive to this truth as a parent. I am sensitive to, finally, after all these years, this responsibility that I have to see my children clearly, you know, where I love and hope. If we see each other clearly, we have enough truth and enough light. We will feel hopeful and we will love them if we see them clearly. You can't not. I think in my mind that goes that goes back, Linnea, to the logic and the necessity for both the heart and the mind. Because like you mentioned before, things can add up if we're just using our reasoning powers, uh, seeing through that lens of, well, if you take this and this and this, they all what they all add up to is that this person is a bad person or the circumstances, nothing good can come of this, you know, the absence of hope. But how when how if you add into the equation that hope is infinite, that it springs eternal, that God is the source of love and his love is eternal, that he doesn't, that's not how he does the math for any one of us. That's he doesn't discount any of us. He doesn't cast us off as a lost cause. It changes the mathematics. It changes the equation entirely. And there's really no equation <laughs> that I know of. Not great with math, but that that can't that can't have a positive sum that can't come out positively. And in terms of what you're saying about the love element of hope, I loved that Dr. Chan. I tried to write it. I was listening to his TED talk, so hopefully I have this accurately. Hope is a social gift. It is not something that happens in isolation within us. It happens in relationships with each other. Our connectedness with each other is one of the single best predictors of hope in a painting class, on the basketball court, in our families, in our communities, in our jobs, our connectedness with others, our connectedness with something greater than ourselves, which I think helps us do the math a little bit more accurately. And I did find, by the way, the quote that I wanted to, I feel like it ties in just a little bit here. I'm going to kind of force it, but this is the Nellie Maxwell quote. He says that in the geometry of restored theology, hope has a greater circumference than faith. If faith increases, the perimeter of hope stretches correspondingly. I love that. That's so cool. Okay, so tell me when you say when you get excited, what do you, <laughs> tell me what are your why do you love that? How does that fit for you? Before you say, let me just finish this because I kind of like okay. left the second part because he kind of like just as doubt, despair, and desensitization go together, so do faith, hope, and charity. The latter, however, must be carefully and constantly nurtured. Whereas despair, like dandelions, needs so little encouragement to sprout and spread, despair comes so naturally to the natural man. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now with the second part, a little more context of what he said, what are you thinking? Well, I fight depression. 
a lot. It's just sort of like this constant. There's been times that have been sunshiny and I'm, I'm generally happy, but it's always just there and it can come so easily. It is. It's like weeds that you're fighting back all the time. You're guaranteed they're going to show up in the spring again. You're going to have to pull them again. You uncover new ground. They're going to show up in the new ground with your flowers and you're going to have to weed them out. And it gets discouraging. And I, I start to question, well, how strong is my faith? If I had more faith, I wouldn't have these endless, endless, endless weeds to pull. There is another talk that we read where she she talks about a really discouraging, like a hope shattering event in her life. A relationship had just ended. She's in her 30s. She wanted to be married. She could see no hope of a future relationship. There's all these things that she wanted in her life. The end of this relationship kind of marked crushing, like that's it. And she was trying to find hope. She was searching for hope and she, it, she felt like it had evaded her. And then she, in her research, found this quote. It was a quote by George Bernanos. He says, optimism is a substitute for hope. One may encounter it everywhere, but hope must be one. One can only attain hope through truth at the cost of great effort and long patience to find hope. And this is a part that really resonated with me. It is necessary to go through despair. Oh, to go beyond despair. And I wrote, to me, this means that at least momentarily, we have to experience despair to move beyond it. When one comes to the end of the night, one meets another dawn. The highest form of hope is despair overcome. That was so hopeful to me. I recognized that this daily encounter with depression that might creep in, having to pull those weeds constantly doesn't mean that I'm lacking hope. It means that my path is hope, that I've chosen that fight. And if hope, if the circumference of hope extends beyond faith, then I win faith as I keep on that path of hope. Because I want, like, this is something I want. I want increased faith. And I'm worried about it. I worry about, well, how's my faith doing? How am I doing? And that just is really hopeful to me. <laughs> I super love that. Marilee, what are you thinking? I love, love all the imagery and everything you said, that the path is hope. And so you just stay on the path despite the mists of darkness that are clouding your view for now. Yes. Did that make you think of the iron rod and Lehi's dream? That's where my mind went immediately. And I keep missing that in that story that everybody has to go through mists of darkness. Like it's inevitable. You don't get like a golden ticket out of it because you're hopeful or because you're faithful or optimistic as you're grasping the iron rod, you're moving forward, but you, you have to go through mists of darkness to get ultimately to the tree of life. A book I read called Proof of Heaven, and it's a near-death experience. And the author was a doctor and in his near-death experience, he had a vision of the universe. He could see that the whole universe was teeming with light and with love. Like it was just saturated. I just imagined all this beautiful color representing God's light and love. And that he could see the earth. And on the earth, the light and love was there, but there was darkness there. 
and it was some of the only darkness in the universe <laughs> concentrated on the earth. And he had a sense of knowing that it was important that it was there, that it was a purposeful. That image has stayed with me, this universe teeming with light, saturated, full of it. And yet we're on the earth and there's this cloud of darkness and God's light and love is just on the other side of that darkness. And so the reality is, is that love and light is far more abundant than any of the darkness that we experience. The darkness is so intense because it's so up in our face and, and we're walking through it. We're walking through its mists. But if I can remember and believe that just through this mist of darkness is the light. And so that's, I think, what I loved what you said about that path lineage. Just stay on the path and trust that even though these mists of darkness are around us, that the light is real and it's immense and we will reach it. And it's bigger and more powerful than the darkness. So mom and dad live on a hill. It's one of the foothills of the Blue Mountains, or it's just right on the edge. You can be down in the valley, and it's cloudy and foggy, and you can drive up. And there's like this world above the clouds, all this light above the clouds, a bright, sunshiny day. And you get the sense that the clouds are more transient, they're not as permanent. Those realities coexist. The darkness. Yes. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we think that the light can't be real because all I can see is darkness. Yeah. But those realities coexist. I loved what you shared. And I just really appreciated that concept as you described it as well, Linnea. And then as you added to it, merely, it brings to my mind the condescension of Christ. And if hope has to be one on the other side of despair, then it makes sense since he is the source of hope, he embodies hope that he descended below all the darkness and all the despair. He conquered that in order to claim hope. And at the level that, that we experience it, we do the same, but we have him to journey through the darkness with us to bring us out on the other side. That is why we have every reason to hope <laughs> is because of him, because he did it. He did it first and foremost, and he'll help us to be able to do it because he's conquered the darkness that we are currently, that we encounter. That just gave me a new sense of, oh, yeah, of course it has to be that way. It was for him and it is for us, but it is for us with him and through him. As we experience his aid in the process for ourselves individually, as we feel that he, we aren't alone as he sends a teacher or he sends a sister or a friend or some emblem of hope that helps us to hold fast <laughs> and to persevere through the through the darkness, then this is how Nellie Maxwell says it. By pressing forward, we can stand on what was yesterday's horizon, thereby drawing hope from our own experiences. Paul described tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Therefore, we seeing we've proved him in days that are past. That's nice. Yeah. In the proving realm of the present, it's nice to know that we've proved him. We can count on him and that he can help us so we can count on ourselves and we can count on others around us because he's proven himself to us. And so we can have hope that we can be proven and hope that others around us are worthy of that same charity, I guess. Final thoughts. 
Do you have any I, left? Have we squeezed squeezed the, <laughs> the hope well, dry? I, <laughs> I do have a final thought. Sometimes when I edit these podcasts and I think, I know my kids would not be very interested in listening to this at this intersection of time in their lives, or maybe for 10 minutes. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I hope. That's impressive. I have a hope <laughs> that at some point that they would have that interest. And sometimes I think when we're encountering different subjects, I have to say, well, what, after all of this, what would I want to say to my child? There's a lot, but I think one of the things I would really like to say is when you're encountering darkness and despair, which we all will, then look at the path that you're on. See if that path needs to be realigned. I think it was Maxwell was just saying that as iniquity increases in the world, that despair is growing. There's no way to overcome despair if we're not on the right path. The path that leads us to Christ is the only path that has the power to bring us through the mists of darkness into the light. Mm -hmm. Every other path that we might find ourselves meandering down just leads to increasing and increasing and increasing darkness. So if that is your experience, check your path. Mm. Realign yourself towards mm -hmm. Christ and His doctrine and the atonement, and you will then be able to discover the light and the hope and the healing that you're looking for. I like the tone that Marilee has set, and it reminds me of that moment with Maria when she was a young teenager and things were so, so hard. I was just really struck. She would tell me about dreams that she had, and they were so apocalyptic about our family and her. And she, she was just going through we all were in different ways, just really struggling with a kind of darkness and sadness. And I was in her room and it was morning time to get ready for school. And I was at a loss. I was like, she is justifiably sad. This is hard. I didn't want to minimize that. I didn't want to say, well, you shouldn't feel this way. <laughs> but the thought just came to me and I feel like it was one of those key turning point revelations for me that choosing hope is a choice that we can choose in any given moment, any hard moment, any overwhelming, seemingly hopeless moment we can choose. I'm going to look for something bright. I'm going to choose hope instead of despair. It was hard to communicate that to her, but it kind of became sort of our anthem and our theme all of us, anyone who would listen in our family, we can choose hope. And Mar Mary Lee talked about small and simple things. Sometimes even just the exercise in it, this sounds trite and trivial and, you know, like a bubblegum, a bubblegum advertisement, but smiling does something to you. And even looking at the horizon and finding something beautiful in the world panorama, you know, light glancing off a window, the, how twigs, you know, look against the sky. That's a choice to see beauty and it's a choice to reach for hope. Yeah, that's how we got through that. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. I, I love what you've both shared and it ties in my mind to Dr. Chan again when he asserts that imagination is important to hope. So the 
capacity to understand that the things as they are right now, that if we can imagine them differently, then that can help give us hope. And really, I really appreciated your thoughts about, okay, if my children were to listen to just a few seconds of this podcast, what would I want them to hear? And then Linnea sharing experiences with her children and her desires for them to have hope and experiences where it was difficult. So when when I think about imagery, imagination, that comes to my mind in difficult times and and not difficult times as well, just times of peace. But like I'm thinking specifically, sometimes when I pray to sort of put myself in that mode of communication with deity, I try to picture a loving Heavenly Father. And Mm -hmm. I try to picture Jesus Christ and picture being with them. If imagination of things as they are not yet, but can be, helps us have hope, That imagery helps me have hope. And this is from Elder Groberg. Oh, to search, to seek, to struggle, and then to see the smiling face of the Savior as over and over and over again, he says, come, come to me. I will heal you. In me, there is always hope. 